Love this podcast? Support this show through the ACAST supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. This episode of McKnight Tonight contains a discussion about suicide. If you need to talk to someone about the issues raised, please contact Beyond Blue on 1300 Hello and welcome to McKnight Tonight. I've known today's guest ever since they were in nappies. The little girl I knew as Kayla has grown up into an amazing man named Josh. But it's been a tough road. Just recently, Josh survived a suicide attempt when he ran his car off the road. But he's in a better place now and has made it his mission to become an advocate for mental health. Josh, welcome to McKnight Tonight. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So, first up, how are you feeling today? Yeah, pretty good. Um, Had a few rough days over the Christmas sort of period, but... Mm -hmm. um, yeah, starting to feel a bit better and sort of feeling myself, which is an unusual feeling. So. You um, you reached a moment, and we, we will go through your history, but you reached a moment where you hit that point. Tell me about the day you tried to take your own life. Yeah, well, um, the one that I was speaking about was probably not the first time. There's been a few other incidences. Mm-hmm. Um where I've had close calls, one before I started my transition from Kayla to Josh, um, there was an incident, and then I did have a few other small attempts. Um, but I guess the big one, I don't know, I, we were going to a party, and I knew I didn't feel right on the way to the party, and I like said to Amy, like, I don't want to go. Like, And looking back, I did increase my drinking, mm-hmm. and I had been drinking that day, and... We got to the party and everything was going sort of well, I thought. And then, like, if you ask people, like, it's like I just clicked and changed. Like, I was arguing but not in a normal sense. And then I just flipped. And then next thing I knew, I was driving my car on the M7 and was on the phone to Amy and just said, I can't do it anymore. And then, yeah, just waited for an open space and hit the barricade as quick as I could. But you obviously survived. Yeah, with fortunately without a scratch. Yeah. Amazing. Yeah, the car flipped um on its head and I was trapped for a while, so yeah, but got out and yeah, and then I think when I got when I got pulled out I wasn't happy that I survived, but a couple of hours later I realised like I needed to get help and like it wasn't healthy to stay with just drinking and 
been in this mindset of always wanting to die. So, When you think about the reasons for wanting to take your own life, is that wrapped in around the transition you've made and trying to find out who you are or is it lack of acceptance? What, what's, what's the, what are the building blocks that get you to that point where there is no hope? Uh, it's more, yeah, more so my thoughts. Um, it's not so much that I want to die, like in the sense of dying. Mm. It's more I just want to get out of my own head. So yeah. um, when I, it's more of an impulsive, like there's never um, a plan thought out. It's always like a split-second decision. Um, and it's, yeah, my head just gets too much and it's normally, yeah, like have I made the right decision? Am I, am I being the right person? Am I doing the right things? Um, then I'll go into like wormholes of how I've let people down and then it will just spiral and spiral and they'll just get too loud and then I'll just want to escape and that's, well, then that was the only way I knew the way to get out. That's the only way I was knew I was getting out, so was to end it all. You said there uh, you were at the party and a, a flick switched. Um, what's that wrapped up? Was there a trigger or was it just something you'd hit that point? Was out, Did alcohol contribute to that? Um, well, it was actually. I turned the TV on to watch the soccer because England was playing. <laughs> um, and my sister-in-law, whose house was at, like I turned the TV on and she's like, Sort of was a bit frustrated that I turned it on because there was people sleeping in the house. And then, I don't know, I guess I just felt like, oh, like I've stuffed up again. Like I've yeah. let someone down and then it just it just erupted. It just fueled that fire and obviously alcohol probably contributed to the... And it's such a minuscule thing really to a little a, a little argument, which is nothing over turning the TV yeah. on. But it's, it comes back to that, I guess, building block where you've got all this other shit going on that you're thinking about and it's, it's that one thing and, and not her fault at all but just about the way you feel about yourself. Yeah, like it had nothing like it could have been anything. Like yeah. It could have been someone refusing me to get a drink or mm. like, I mean, there's been plenty of times where I've lost it over, like not to the point of suicide but lost it in like an outburst over something tiny, like the dishes or, but it wouldn't be the dishes, it'd be what's happened like three, four days before that just, I kept in and just kept building and building and building, so. And when you say um, that you've let people down again, is is that what contributes to your, your thoughts, your negative thoughts that you've, just made a lot of bad decisions and you're affecting other people's lives is is that how you see yourself pretty much in a nutshell that's pretty much like i'm just a a burden to pretty much everyone that's how i felt a lot of my life like it's just one thing after another like there's another problem or i've ruined another party or like with an outburst or i've done something Hmm. to put someone else out or so for a lot probably only up to the last sort of few months um started to see like i don't have control over how people react i can only um that's a focus that's a huge thing to realize (laughs) that you know like i think a lot of people go through life not realizing that we all want to control the narrative of how other people see us but we can't and there's also sometimes we've got to accept that people some people don't like us and nothing we do is going to change their mind. And so how do you live for yourself, knowing that some people will love you, some people will not, you know? And and that's wrapped up in everyone, I think. Yeah, that's a, that's probably the biggest thing I've 
sort of learn after my few admissions into the private hospital um, mm. for psychiatric care was that, yeah, I've got no control and if I don't look after myself, I can't help anyone else. So, mm. um, And that was sort of the biggest thing for me in that obviously the negative thoughts don't help whatsoever. Like they've got no benefit, so... Absolutely. Um, let's go back because weirdly, you know, I was there, you know, soon after you were born. You've been, I've been, you know, you've been in my life for your whole life. So it's weird to think you're, I'm sitting opposite a grown man now, but I used to change your nappy. Uh, you know, I used to play with you as a little girl. Um, <clears throat> you always were a bit of a tomboy. There's no doubt about that. Yeah. And I think you probably had, an, a, a, your dad's a truck driver. Yep. And uh, he seemed to like having a little buddy, you know, like I I always felt like you were the boy he never had. Um, Did you, at what point did you start to feel like you were in the wrong body? Um, Probably from the first, I remember it was probably five. Right. Yeah, but then I look back at photos, like with dad, when I was in preschool, like I'd go to preschool one day a week and then go to work with dad and we had our matching trucker singlets and stubby shorts <laughs> and boots and matching eskies and then I'd go to work with granddad with my little tool belt um yeah. but when I first like come to mum and just said like why wasn't I born a boy um that's when I sort of realized that mum was just like you're just the little girl that likes boy things and I just continued on and you know back then it wasn't such a big deal like I was allowed to run around the house with no shirt on yeah um yeah, so what didn't affect me as much, there was still a probably a almost daily thought of I'm not like my sisters, I'm not the little girl that they want me to be. Yes, because you've got three sisters and they all used to dress pretty much identically in dresses and ribbons and all that kind of stuff. Yeah, and then I was like their little doll that they try to dress <laughs> up. So, like, there was a definitely a constant feeling that I just never belonged, like I wasn't... Mm-hmm. Like I wasn't the boy that dad wanted or that he, yeah, obviously not wanted, but I'm not saying they didn't want me, but, um, and I wasn't the little girl that yeah. they thought I was just sort of in this limbo sort of situation for 23 years. I, I, I remember, um, there were some difficult times through school where, you know, you, you, you'd run into problems with other students because they'd tease you, call you a lesbian and all this kind of stuff. Um, how hard was that dealing with as a young kid? One, trying to work out who you are as a person, but obviously um, it might be a little bit easier today, but, you know, they were, they were negative terms back then especially and kids used them to put down people. Yeah, like I think um, primary school was okay because it was almost like I'd been inserted into this little bubble. I had, you know, two best mates that were boys and I pretty mm-hmm. much played every sport and, you know, that sort of age, nothing... Kids don't know what's different or... Yeah. And then um, went to high school and it's like that bubble just got popped. Like it was a big smack in the face. I wasn't... I didn't fit in. I was like, who was this girl wearing, hanging out with boys? And then it was like, you're a slut. Um, you're this and that. And then it was unfortunate timing, but it was when... I don't know if you remember... I, when they had the big brother and Miriam went in. Yes. So she was a transgender from male to female. So then those rumours that like, I was Miriam. So I was like transgender. And then, oh yeah, I was either that or a slut or, um, 
like I was only hanging out with the boys to sleep with them. And so then I just would withdraw and then yeah. I just refused to go to school and mum would fight every day and I'd just blatantly refuse, just did, wouldn't even get out of bed. Did you change schools at some point? Yeah. So with that school, I think I lasted maybe nine, didn't get all the way to end of year seven. I left. I um, did distant education because I refused. So then I was just hanging out with my grandparents every day. Mm-hmm which is nice, but then you don't really get any other... You don't get that social interaction. <laughs> yeah, so which um has played an effect on me nowadays, like with the no friends and stuff and feeling like I don't have anyone. And then I end up going to, um, I think I was about 14, 15, and I just gave in to society and just went, well, I'll just go to my sister's school. And mum's like, you know, you have to wear a skirt and all this. And I just said, oh, I give up. Like, I'm just going to try and fit in. Um yeah. And then I tried that and there was an incident um, with a sexual assault with one of my sister's friends and then that got rumoured around the school. So there was like a whole another war path from that. So then I left. So uh, what does that mean? Sorry. So I got one of my, there was like a, I got sexually assaulted by one of my sister's friends. Right. And, okay. Yeah. And then he knew people that went to that school, but he didn't say it was like a sexual assault. So I was only 14 and then he he was 20 or something, the same age. Jesus. And then, so yeah, he made all these rumours around the school. So I only lasted there maybe four or five months and then I left, went back to my old school in a skirt thinking, you know, it'll be different. Like yeah. cause I know a lot of my friends from primary school were still there and then, well, then it still didn't work out. Like girls were still nasty I was now a threat to boy like to the boys that they liked and so I think halfway through year eight I left and refused to do schooling. So for a whole year I just worked with my granddad every right. day. So which is yeah, at fifteen the only person you're sort of seeing is your sixty seven year old granddad. <laughs> so I mean it was good but yeah, I lost it a lot like, you know, friends and parties and things like that you you mentioned um a, a little earlier that of the latest attempt wasn't your first and that when you were younger so was it around with all these things going on it's you were battered and bruised and i've got to be honest i i because we were all family friends it was all extended family in a way yeah um i'd heard i heard little bits and pieces but i've got to be honest i wasn't aware of the true extent of what was going on the full extent yeah and um, so was it around that time that you just thought, I don't want to do this, this is too hard? Um, I always had contemplated it, but um, I know with our upbringing, it was very stern and with, you know, Nen having foster kids, we're always mm. taught there's always someone worse off. So I think that just like constantly replayed in my head, like I'm not as bad as those kids, like my life is nothing. But if I look back, I probably was nearly as bad just mm. because I had a mum and dad, so... It was just different. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't then. Um, I sort of come good a bit. Like, I did year 10 at TAFE so I could get my apprenticeship with my uncle. Um, and that worked out all right. Like, I had a few good mates that I made through there, but it was still that. I was always the girl. Yeah. I was always the old one out. Um, and then another... So that was another four years of just hanging out with my uncle and other people. Mm. So... I lost out on like that sort of big You've time. You've had no real childhood where yeah, you established those friends, yeah. So um, that has a massive 
not back then now it's sort of is something I struggle with like not friends and you know school friends or lifelong friends um but yeah just still with the gender dysphoria that still played massively and there was I think I was I'd ask mum when I was five 11 15 like I want to be a boy I want to be a boy and it was just not shut down but just it was a different time back then not only was it a different time it was a very you grew up in a very working class um area yeah it's not something that you know people were used to no and mum being a school teacher I think she and I'd already been bullied I think it was just she didn't want to add more to the Mm. to the mix so um, but how hard was it when you just went, I just have to put on this skirt and go to school, considering that it sounds like every fibre of your being, that's not what you wanted to do? Oh, it was extremely difficult. Like, I hated it, like, day in, day out, like, did my hair and the makeup and stuff, and it just was like I was this... Like, I look back now and look back at pictures and I don't even recognise the person. Mm. Like my sister, her little daughter Georgie, she's two, and they say, "Oh, she looks so much like me when I was a kid." But I don't see that resemblance because I don't see myself as that little girl. So even when I yeah. see pictures, I don't. You can't associate. Yeah, with I that don't person. associate with that person. So it was. So who I was looking in the mirror was never who I, my brain imagined my body to, or what I'd look like. So it was a very challenging sort of thought process that was often just shut down and pushed down and just not spoken about. Mm. And But you eventually found Amy? Yeah. When did that happen and how what, How did that happen? So it's funny. Um, I played soccer with Amy's younger sister and we'd been out a few times, I think, like out clubbing because like, I, you know, went out with my sisters and stuff and... Um, we had a mutual family friend fundraiser and I was there and so by this time I had defied mum and I'd so I was, yeah still Kayla um cut my hair short which how old were you 20 21 22 were you old enough to make your own decisions yeah it was, it was a big pro it was a big step it was a, <laughs> it shocked the family so when you cut your hair yeah um but that was sort of my stand I was like no um and I had like a girlfriend previous, but how how did the family take to that? Yeah, that was like nothing. It was like they expected it, but mm-hmm. for me it was weird. I didn't never saw myself as a lesbian. Mm-hmm. I always thought I'd just be like a guy dating a girl. Yeah. Um. So it was really hard. Like you know, I didn't get into those scenes and stuff. So yep. um, with my ex girlfriend, it wasn't really a healthy relationship because I was always that struggle. Right. Um. But yeah, so then I, that ended. Um, but yeah, then Amy, we went to the movies and I was talking to her sister and she she come over to say hi and I just panicked and said hi and ran off. <laughs> um, like, I don't even know what went over me, but anyway, so, so then I had to send a message like, oh, so sorry for running off. Like, I had to go somewhere, just made an absolute fool of myself. Um, but yeah, that was sort of good timing I guess um and I did bring it up early on in our relationship that I'd thought considered transitioning um and Amy was pretty honest with me and said like she didn't know if she'd be able to stay with me 
um, because of where she was in her life. But she said she'd always stay by my side, like as a friend. And then, <laughs> and then I did say like with her, I feel like myself, so it doesn't matter. Um, but then again, I, I guess I was just putting myself back into a little bubble. Yeah. And if no one touched that bubble, I was fine. But life happens, and that bubble gets popped. Um, so I think the first big suicide attempt pre-transition was um i was at a christmas party and for because i was construction carpenter so um fair bit of alcohol consumed and um it was just like little things again like someone walked into the men's toilets and there was this big joke like he was talking to himself in the mirror i thought it was someone else and i just had this feeling of well i'll never be a part of that because i don't know what they're talking about yeah um and then that just got me and just little things. And then I come back and just pretty much exploded. And like I come, Amy picked me up and I was going off in the car and she's like, I'm taking you to your mum's. Like I can't deal with this and climb three story scaffold and sat on the top of the scaffold ready to jump. So um, I was pulled down then. And then that's when like, I think everyone realized like, I should, like, I meant to be a boy. Like, I wasn't, yeah. like, they didn't realise how much of a toll it was taking on my mental health. Um, so that sort of resolved that issue. So we started the process quite quickly and rapidly. Um, I just want to go back a fraction. When you were sitting on that scaffold, how long were you up there? Maybe like an hour. And you're sitting there with that thought, do I jump or do I not? I, I always wonder when we've got these suicidal thoughts, I think it comes down to a fleeting moment of whether we take the step and in that case take the plunge or that whether we sit there. And I think it comes down to moment by moment because you're trying to weigh it up in your head, what's the better outcome here? What do you think kept you from going over? Um, I guess like, yeah, I don't know. Like, yeah, you're definitely right. There's that, that constant back and forth of do I, don't know, will it make things better? Mm. Will I only break my legs and then be a paraplegic? Mm. Like there's all these, you know, as I've proven, there's no guarantee when you try and kill yourself and it's going to mm. work. Um, but I think it was like mum and Amy, like they were just saying, it's going to be okay. We'll work it out. Like everything can get worked out. And so I guess I had found that there was a tiny bit of hope like maybe you know i can finally be myself um and it was the same thing i didn't want to die i just wanted to get out of my head like mm. it just like just consumes me and just overwhelms me well for 23 years you'd been living a lie pretty much yeah and living to someone else's narrative you have to wear a dress to school you have to integrate you you know you have to do these girly things you can't use the men's toilet can't play this sport because it's a boys' sport. Yeah. Can't do this, can't do that. So everyone after that accepted that you were going to transition? Yeah, pretty much forced. Not forced to accept, but, yeah, there was... Like, I'm, I was very lucky with my family. There's a lot of kids out there that don't have the mm. fortunate to have support from... You, you have a very loving family. Yeah. Like, yeah. I'm not saying, like, it was easy, but no. it's not an easy thing 
for not only myself but the, for them to go through mm. as well um i guess like what mum said something to me like i've lived 23 years knowing that i wanted to be a boy like so i just need to give the family time to catch up yeah so um but sure. you yeah, know yeah they'll kids the kids were the most resilient mm. didn't even blink an eyelid <laughs> like okay they were just like okay yeah they're very accepting yeah like i remember my niece my sister got out for coffee and she said you know arnie kayla's now going to be uncle josh and he's going to get medicine to make him be a man because that's what he's that's what he is in the inside and she was like okay (laughs) but i'm a girl and i want to be a girl she's like yes that's okay (laughs) okay you don't have to change so yeah very very resilient the kids they just Yeah. yeah did you find any resistance um, I think the hardest thing for my family was, you know, I was that long blonde hair, dark tanned, mm. sort of average height girl, quite attractive. So I think for them it was like, but you're so attractive. Yes. But I'm like, but I don't want to be an attractive girl. Yeah. I yeah. want to be a good looking boy, like guy. Mm. So I think that was where the biggest resistance was. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just, but I guess that's superficial, but... Um, but when they it's also o- their way of sort of trying to process, like they they look at the external and go, "But you've got everything. You're a beautiful yeah. young girl. What, what's wrong here? You know, why do you why do you not what, want what society says we're aiming for? You know, to be looked at as attractive, to you know, um, have that external look. Yeah, that persona, that yeah. sort of yeah. So um, that was yeah, that was probably the only bit of resistance I had. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, the process was quite daunting and grueling. You pretty much get, um, you have to be seen by a Pacific psychiatrist. Mm-hmm. There was only one in New South Wales now. Mm. Um, and really? Yeah, there's only one in New South Wales. And now my psych that I actually see now, he's a new one because the Patrick Tui, who I seen, he's now retired. So it's quite difficult to be seen by someone and then if you're an adolescence it's even a whole another can of worms like it's getting Mm. better but and yeah he pretty much just sits there for a good hour and just picks apart your life will ask everything and you know did you have this did you have this like and because obviously once you start the changes are irreversible so right yeah it's a pretty once you start the once the voice cracks and the hair grows like there's sort of no coming back from that. So. Okay. But um, he said it's a less than a 1% regret rate with their process. So obviously, it's a very thorough process to you get the okay. You had 23 years of knowing this is what yeah. you wanted. I could have done it at five and I would have been fine. Mm. But anyway, everything <laughs> happens for a reason. <laughs> um, so you went through that. How did that affect your relationship? Um, it was a bit... Well, it's probably been challenging for the whole six years we've been together. Different moments. Um, we talked about it and Amy was sort of given from both my family and her mum, like, are you sure you want to stay? Like, um, And I said, like, you don't have to stay. Like, I don't expect you to stay. Mm. Um, we're pretty open about it. Like, I'm like, this is not what you signed up for and sort of things. And we spoke about it and... Amy was like, no, like, I love you for who you are, not for what you are. So I guess, like, the person that I was, not the 
the body that I had, um, which I was fortunate for. Um, but yeah, like took me to every appointment for my injection. Still takes me to <laughs> most of my appointments because I get nervous and might go. Um, she seems like an extraordinary woman. And yeah. you can, we are speaking about her in front of her. She's <laughs> sitting next to Josh right now as a bit of support. Yeah, so, um, yeah, it's not. And then with the whole surgery, that's a whole other big operation. So Amy had me on a... So obviously the image I had in my hair, head was a nice, you know, buff chest, like what, you know, off the beach. And I've been to a few support groups and there was a few horror stories with surgeries and stuff. There's only three in Australia that do it. So finding, so Amy did her due diligence and researched the best Mm -hmm. plastic surgeon that would do it the best way Um, and then had me on a strict diet for six weeks leading up to it and the six weeks after. So I was like, no alcohol, no lifting, no stretching. So when you say the surgery, how extensive is that? Uh, Double, it's quite major with double mastectomy. Like it was, uh, how many hours? Yeah, four or five-hour surgery. Like, it's pretty major. Right. Yeah, drains and... Yeah, so... I mean, this... Oh, it's, it's pretty good. You wouldn't even... Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, it's a lot. Yeah, so he cuts underneath the breast line. So if right. you build pecs, you can't see him. But... Yeah. Yeah, but Amy had me very strict. I couldn't lift anything, so I didn't stretch the scars because, you know... They're very... They're, they're not that noticeable. No, it's... um Actually, I sometimes I forget that I'm transgender like um and I had a chiropractor appointment and just took my shirt off and I was laying on the bed and the young guy I think he's the same age as me he's like oh you've had a surgery like what's that from and I'm like oh a double mastectomy he's like oh what happened and I was like oh I used to be a girl <laughs> and he's like oh I wouldn't even known yeah so like sometimes I do forget which is nice like I just forget and just I'm just but that's Josh. where you want to be right yeah um and in those moments, I try and find the funny side. Mm. Like, and Mikey just had no idea. Like, just absolutely no idea. So, um, so you're now at a point where you can live the life as Josh. Um, it, how is that? Yeah, it's getting. I think um, it's getting there day by day. Um, it's it's hard to get out of the sort of headspace of like being negative and. You know, because you know, when I transitioned, I thought, oh, I'm letting the whole family down. Like, you know, right? I've disappointed them. It's that. And I guess probably the biggest thing I learned from it and from the transition is, I mean, hindsight's a wonderful thing. I probably should have went into care while I was transitioning to talk about everything. Because right. yep. for, well, to the recent like attempt, that was 26 years of things. And mm. It's not a fun thing with the testosterone. You're getting a chemical injected into your body two weeks to start with and then they spread it out to 12 and then my body metabolized it too quick. So it's like you're coming off a drug. So mm. I had highs, lows, mood swings. Like it was a pretty traumatic sort of 18 months to two years and now I've sort of got them. I get them at eight weeks because my body metabolizes too quick. Um, But yeah, it's just all the... The, men, the things that don't get said that just, mm. I guess, were building up in my head and just things from childhood come up and I just never sort of spoke about it because that's what our family did. We just didn't speak about <laughs> yes. it. I think that's what a lot of families do. It's yeah. just 
sweep it under the carpet and move on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then unfortunately, I probably turned to alcohol, which is quite a cultural thing in my family. So that went unnoticed for quite some time that I probably had a severe drinking problem. And, you know, I was drinking six to 10 beers a night, mm. riding myself at family parties to the point where I was incoherent or right. would go on off on a rampage. So, and all that just went unnoticed. Um, saw these like little signs that people don't realize could be the, unlike the unraveling of a breakdown. Um, so I guess, yeah, I just, all I've learnt myself is just to be open and honest with them and just let them know how I'm feeling and sort of give them a bit more understanding of mental health and mm. like, it's not a taboo thing. Like it's okay not to be okay. So, Well, that's the thing. You now want to talk about mental health and, and get the word out there. Yeah. Like it's a very, um, I had the unfortunate, the public system is very, very daunting. Mm. Um, I remember after my accident and I said, okay, like I need to get help. Like I agreed to it. And Amy's like, well, I'm not taking you home. So you're getting scheduled like you're, like you're too unsafe. Um, and that was in Cumberland and that was, uh, the, I was like bawling my eyes out. I was like, please just take me home. I can't go in here. And they said, you have to go. It's for your own safety. And it was literally a L shaped hospital like wing. You, everything got locked up. I got put into like a single room, which was like a cell, plastic bed. Um, you couldn't lock, lock the toilet doors. Um, they couldn't get water like everything was locked up and then the more like you can't go outside in the morning so then you just pace the corridors and then when it's breakfast time you just get your train your food slapped on like you're a second class citizen it's very it's very um demeaning and Mm. demoralizing when you're probably at your lowest yeah so fortunately amy knew of the private north side um and we're on private health fund, which is very fortunate because we got the bill to what they've paid out over the last <laughs> six months and it's, yeah, quite hefty. Um, then, yeah, the private sector's, you know, completely different. It's, you know, you're treated like an actual human being. Yeah. Um, obviously, it is quite more expensive, but you get one-on-one psychiatric care. Mm. You go to classes every day to help you deal with, you know, they do a range of things. Um you know, you're in, you're with people that want to be there. So the problem with the public system is people there are involuntary and voluntary. So with the private sector, it's all voluntary. Of course. Um, so that was really good. But then, so I spent three weeks in there and then I discharged and then something happened. I can't, I just felt I come out and it was like that bubble had been pop- popped again. Like I was just kind of really good, like had made like you know I realized what I did wasn't okay and you know it's not the way out and then something happened and that bubble popped and I was like I need to go back to hospital I need to go back and this was like a Friday night and I was like couldn't control my thoughts like they were just running rampant like just a thousand miles an hour so the only way I knew to stop them was to take 50 lorazepam and 20 Valium and just try and wipe myself out, which had the negative, different effects. So I just went into a psychotic high. 
So then that was another trip to the hospital. Then I had to get sent to Burundi, which is another public system. And that was, you just get locked into a cage for mm. 24 hours of the day with a TV. Like, can't do anything. You get 10 minutes to eat your breakfast and it's locked and you're in, you're out. It's like pretty much like being in jail, I'd say. Yeah. The closest I've... <laughs> Close as I want to get to jail, so mm. um, I think that's where the big gap is between the public and the private sector. And sounds horrific. Yeah, and I think the people that's, we're trying to help. Yeah, supposedly. I, and I just seen like I remember one kid in Burundi, the one at Campbelltown, and he come up to me. He's like, oh, "What are you in here for?" And I was like, "Oh, um, suicide and depression." And he's like, "Oh, what are you in here for?" He's like, "Depression." And I was like, "Well, how long have you been here?" And he's like, three months." Jeez. and he just rolls around in his robe and watches cartoons all day and I'm like how is he going to get better mm. like there's nothing they don't do anything for him unfortunately the nurses just sit in their glass room and just watch and make sure nothing happens mm. like there's no sort of structure to help him get better um, they don't get seen by a psych regularly like where they're not like in the private you get seen three times a week to make yeah. sure you're met Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. are on track and if any so yeah i definitely do think there's that massive gap between public and private and you know we're only fortunate enough we had private health insurance but mm. not a lot of people do and that's and that's where it gets a lot of people because you try and get help and like i've been to emergency plenty of times and they won't schedule you and you just get sent home and, and we've had a lot of people we know just sent home so you think it just sounds like it's just not taken seriously you know we we are now starting to talk about suicide and you know previously it was never reported in the media but we are now at a point where people are talking about it and you know we we talk about well what can be done but if people are ending up in hospital and being turned away we've we've got a serious issue don't we yeah like that's there's sort of no, like, even to get, like, psychiatries, like, psychiatrists, like, the best ones, like, they're clo their books are closed. Like, <laughs> yeah. like, to get a half-decent one, like, a psychologist, like, I was only lucky enough to get into my psychologist because I was in Northside, so mm -hmm. she keeps vacancies open for that. But I'm like, what, what if someone can't afford Northside? And then, you know, then the government, they only give you 10 under Medicare, mm. And a lot of them charge over the Medicare rebate. So, you know, you're out of... I think we worked out for a month for me to have treatment. It was like medication. So two, psychi two psychology appointments, a psychiatry appointment was like nearly $1,000 a month. Jeez. Just to stay well. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but you, you sort of were coming through it. You transitioned from Kayla to Josh... I guess a lot of people would have gone, well, you got what you wanted. Why aren't you happy? Yeah, I guess a lot of people would have 
thought that and that was I know that was probably going around a lot of people in my family's heads mm. like you know what what else is wrong and I just think there's but you've been living for 23 years with this with this restriction on you yeah and you know you you you've had all these those issues at school you've had to change schools you haven't had a consistency to your life just because you've you've finally got this goal that you've wanted it's not going to fix everything immediately is it no i learned that the hard way i think i had a little bit of a false sort of sense of security like once i got to the point like you know i'd be i'd be fine but then there's like and it's it's funny it's just the little trivial things that will just tick me like tick me over like a small comment or you know and i guess there's still times like when we go to family dinners like i'm still not a part of the boys like sometimes i'll just find myself Mm. left in the middle of conversation but you know i think that's something the boys need to work on themselves like you know because obviously they were around when i was kayla so it's a big they've got to change how they see them um but yeah i think i just had this probably like a unrealistic picture that i just thought a button was going to get flicked and you know the holy grail was going to open up and you know my life would be like my life is completely different like don't get me wrong but i just thought all those problems Problems were going to go away but they're all still there like Mm. the anxiety is still there like i suffer severe social anxiety anxiety in general um i still get low moods like Mm. days where i don't want to get out of bed and I mean, they're becoming few and far between, but I think that was the biggest thing. And I got frustrated myself. I'm like, why are you like this? You've got what you wanted. Like, and that's, I'd get angry at myself. I'm like, Mm. you've got what you wanted. Like, why are you still like this? And, you know, and then going to the therapy, like the day classes, a lot of things have come up and they're like, I wonder why, like, you know, there was a lot of things that happened throughout our childhood that... Mm weren't you know great and and i guess they um they talk about like your core beliefs and the biggest one for me was like there's always someone worse and they'd say but what if you're that worse person Mm. so i'm like so it's just like little things like that the idea that there's always someone worse doesn't invalidate how you're feeling i've never really accepted that argument to be honest i think that i i understand they might be feeling worse but you or me still have feelings and it doesn't invalidate how we're feeling about ourselves or what we're going through yeah and it's like um they talk massively in there like in Northside about how the same event can happen to 10 different people and there'll be 10 different reactions yep and it doesn't matter um so like just like yeah just like little things like that have helped me and reading more and just opening up and um but there was one last time I thought I'd give it a go and try and knock myself off for good, which was only just before Christmas. Um, that was probably the scariest one. What happened? So we had a birthday party and I hadn't been drinking for six six months and my psychiatrist was like, you know, maybe start, try mindful drinking. So, you know, just one or two... Um, and so we're at a birthday party with family and went downstairs and immediately I probably wasn't in the bed he- headspace to begin with, so I probably shouldn't have drank. Um, so I had one beer, 
one beer turns two beers, mm. two beers turn to three beers. And then not only do, because I haven't drank for six months, I get a bit tipsy, then I'm frustrated at myself. I've let myself down, I've let Amy down, I've let the whole thing down, I've let my doctors down, and then I just went into a spiral again of I'm worthless, I'm this, I'm that. Um, just in the head, just started running wild, and I was like, no, nah, I'm over it. Like, I'm like six months, and I'm still like this. Like, I'm like, this isn't it. So got on my push bike and rode into the bushes. Took 50 liars of him again and then tried to hang myself. So the police found me, but I think it was more traumatic for Amy trying to find me in the middle of a mm. bush. Knowing that you'd gone missing. Yeah, not knowing whether I was dead or alive or hanging on by a thread. So I think when she opened up about that, that scared me the most, like how I'd affected her because it, when I'm in that moment, I have no consideration you're not thinking of the aftermath yeah i've because amy's like don't you think about the kids and i'm like i don't think about anyone when i'm Mm. in that like i've i've got no like oh i just have to my body just shuts itself off and that's probably the only way i can get to that point but then still i have that back and forth do i don't i is this going to make it better and it's probably good that i hesitated so the police could Mm. get there in time um, but yeah, so I do still, so that was on the 20th of November, I think. And then, so I went back in for another admission, um, short admission and come out and I just have to be aware of them now. And because they still do come like the impulses and like we're at the beach camping the other night and just out of nowhere, I just had a sudden urge and I just went. Imagine if I just went and jumped off those rocks, like, do you reckon mm-hmm. I'd survive? Like, it's not, a, it's not a rational thought, but things like that will just, I'll just be like, if I get that low, I'll just be like, well, what's it really matter if I make it or I don't make it? So, which is, can be, like, it's quite scary that I still have, but i just been told to be aware and just don't react, and if they're still there an hour later, then do something so so what's your plan for surviving the next 30 40 years uh therapy lots of therapy i mm. think there's a lot of um stuff that i haven't even brought up with my it's like i've been seeing her for six months and it's just pretty much what's happened over the last six months yeah. like there's nothing back from when i was you know five and you know there was times where dad was an abusive fight like dad and husband so there's traumas there i was going to ask how is your relationship with your dad well we don't speak to each other so we haven't spoken since for six years i think i said and what was the trigger for that he just cut cut us off again like i was the one that reached out after he left mum to speak and tried really hard and he just, I don't know if he can, he can't deal with what happened or, um, but he's never met me as Josh. Right. Okay. Yeah. He's, so the last he saw of you, you were still Caleb. Yeah. Um, he's seen me like at a funeral, um, but knowing, like we had no interactions. Like, I'm sure he knows who I am. Um, but yeah, no interaction. Um, sort of just leaving it for now. Maybe write him a letter. 
And he has cut ties with the whole family, hasn't he? Yeah, like he doesn't. Yeah, he hasn't seen anyone. Um, I mean, like I know my sisters probably would never speak to him again, but mm. it's something that I still, because like when I was little, like we were you the were best of mates. Yeah. So you know, everyone, and I know that more than anyone right now, everyone makes mistakes. And you know, when I look back, I'm like, probably he had you know major mental health issues, and mm. there was no help for it. Like, it was, if you didn't suck it up, you were all... No, you had to suck it up. Yeah. Uh, that's 100%. Yeah, so I do have empathy for sort of that generation. Like, mm. sort of probably the generation coming up, like my little niece and nephews, it won't be such a bad... They can actually speak out. Yeah, and it'll probably be put into, like, it's okay to talk about mm. your feelings and how you feel, but definitely not only, like, my parents' generations, but mine, it's very... Mm. Like, I think we've lost about five or six people between us to suicide, so... Right. Like, and... It's a problem. Yeah. And it's more, it's getting... Like, I, I scroll Facebook and it's men mainly, like, mm. it's massive, the suicide rate, and so it's a quite scary statistic. Which is why I think we need to talk about it. Yeah, and it's just... And even in the... um like the gender just like um the transition community it's not how you say it but i can't say the lg <laughs> lesbian gay bisexual transgender community um yeah like it's massive in there because they just get shunned or wiped mm. out by their families or yeah which is like i don't know how i would have coped if you know my whole family cut me off mm. at that when you're at your most vulnerable so um i was quite lucky to have they sucked it up and just said this is what we need to do for him and mm. and we got there in the end so and then once again with this six months they've done their best to and it's uncharted waters like no one knows what to do mm. i don't know what i need there's no magic answer yeah like people are trying to help me and i'm like i don't know what i need i'm just literally trying to make sure i wake up and go about my day and mm. try not to act on an impulsive thought which is pretty much at my days at the moment and just monitor it and you know I've got, we've got plans in place and if it gets extreme again to go back to hospital and because then I had a whole thing about hospital like how embarrassing and so we've got like it's not embarrassing it's okay to go back to hospital yeah I mean you get your dinner cooked breakfast cooked lunch cooked <laughs> like it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty nice <laughs> But, um, yeah, it's definitely, definitely something that even though I suffered it, it's being in there, seeing other people and, you know, there's ample amount of different mental health issues and, um, problems. And, you know, I'm just, my one is just a speckle on the map of what's not even talked about or, so. But still important. Yeah, like that, yeah, everyone is, it's still important. And I, I truly believe that everyone at one point or another suffers from anxiety and depression. And mm. I think a lot of people um, think it's normal and mm. they won't seek, that's just how they are. And yep. I'm like, well, it's not normal. Like you shouldn't be feeling so agitated or so high. Like it's not a normal, like your amygdala is like always, I'm reactive, so... I think um, 
yeah, because people are just too scared. If I say something, I'll lose my job or yes, I'll get. I think that's out. a very real fear. Yeah, and possibly still a fair fear. Yeah, especially in the um, you know, a few people in the services like police and all mm. that have been pushed out for post traumatic stress and stuff because they don't want to deal with the repercussions of mm. so which is you know they're just left to their own devices um i know Northside they've got a sister one that's um big for vets and stuff right which is just full of vets and they have a wing just for first responders and so it's slowly getting there but i mean there's 30 beds like they're constantly at full capacity yeah. like 30 beds in the middle of Campbelltown and I just think it's it should be free like I don't think it's a level is $1,100 a night to stay there to get treated well hopefully hopefully as we start to recognize mental health more that that will change over time yeah, and, you know, successive governments will make more and more advancements in that field. Do you have hope for the future? Yeah, definitely. Like I'm starting to get a lot more optimistic and can see um, where might like a bit more direction, and mm-hmm. um, I'm starting to feel like me. And that's, I guess, I never felt like me. I didn't even know who me was. Um, so that's. So how of, great is that? Yeah. So that's my biggest plan for the 2019 is just. To work out who I am, I mm. like we're talking. I'm so my birthday on Sunday will be the first birthday in 13 years, probably more that I wouldn't have had a drink at. Mm-hmm. So it's like I never knew who I was without alcohol. I didn't know how to socialize without alcohol. Yeah. Um. So that's a big. It's quite an interesting little experiment, but um, yeah, I find that you know I can do it and I can cope, and you know drinking isn't everything. It's quite a makes a massive effect on me especially so mm. um but yeah that's probably yeah but yeah i do see like you know kids and future and but just still taking each day as it is and just taking those steps to just really get those sort of foot like the ground solid underneath so yeah i can keep going forward so and a step back isn't detrimental like it's just a step back so. part of the journey yeah which is something I struggled with. So, Well, I think you're pretty amazing and inspirational, actually. You know, I've been close to your story but not fully part of it. And, you know, I've sort of been a bit of an extended family <laughs> member on the outskirts, you know. But um, I've been just so impressed with the way you've held yourself and the way you've um, uh, taken everyone on this journey with you. And i just got to say, Amy sitting next to us giving you support as well i think she's an amazing woman you've got someone truly great by your side i think the future is bright and i wish you nothing but full success thank you very much yes i'm very fortunate for my beautiful wife yes and the love and support of yeah family extended family and friends and you know the people that send comments on facebook and stuff just little that you know just make you feel like you're not alone and stuff so Mm. which i think is massive yeah, well, you're great, and thank you. Thank you for doing this. This no was worries. a big deal. So thank you. thank you for being on McKnight tonight. Thank you very much. Fun, insightful interviews from a watchdog producer with nothing to lose.
Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.